Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CX Cast, your source for all things experience. And today, our guests are Fatima Kadablu, who is VP and Principal Analyst here at Forrester on the CMO team. Hey, Fatima. Hey, Angelina. Nice to be here. We're happy to have you. And Nick Monroe, who is my peer on the Future of Work team, newly minted PhD. Nick, congrats. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me here. And of course, my co-host here, Adele. Hey, Adele. Hey, Angelina. And hi, all of our fabulous guests today. Yes, I'm sure everyone's wondering why we have not one, but two superstar guests today. Well, we've got a big topic, one that we are sort of doing a mini series on, but we've just decided that we are going to continue covering indefinitely. And that's on data ethics and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in fact, Fatima and Nick wrote a report called Everyone Benefits When Data Ethics and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, as we'll call it today, converge, which is awesome because I think everyone listening would like to know how they benefit from this. So can you start by maybe telling me why this research is important? I can kick us off and and I'll hand it off to Nick too, but I kind of joke that I'm a reformed database marketer by trade and training. And when I was doing database marketing many moons ago, the data that we had about people was fairly limited, right? As we've kind of moved forward a couple of decades, the data that we have about people is incredibly vast, incredibly deep and rich and voluminous. (laughs) And so the way that we treat that data, the way that we collect that data, the way that we use that data has become incredibly important. And so for the last eight years at Forrester, I've actually been covering privacy from a marketing perspective. And as of about a year and a half ago, we really started to talk about it more in the context of data ethics, because it's not just about privacy, right? It's actually about the ethical collection and the use. It's about mitigating harm. We actually define data ethics as, and this is a mouthful, but it's a systematic approach to ensuring that the collection and the use of data about people is legal, that's the privacy part, fair and just, and that it proactively mitigates the potential for harm. So that's really why data ethics is such a critical part of what I cover. And this research actually came out of a wave, believe it or not, we ran a database and engagement agencies wave, and we had a DEI criterion, and I'll let Nick talk about that. And then we had a data ethics criterion, the wave. And as we were looking at the work that these agencies were doing, we saw a real convergence, and we saw a need to talk about these two things together. For anyone listening, a wave is Forrester's evaluation of a set of vendors. Yes. So I, and I can follow up on a few things that Fatima was talking about. So one, the uh, voluminous data piece, which I think is a really interesting way to enter the conversation around DEI in that we have access to all of this data, but we don't necessarily know or are able to leverage the insights about the data. So that's for me where I start to see, we start to think about things like inclusion and diversity and equity and how we interact with and use and, and leverage the data. I think that that's where you can start to get these insights about folks. The other thing uh, Fatima said that got me thinking as well is in this era where brands are starting to really 
humanize themselves, become have these very human-like relationships with customers. It also increases the expectations folks have for the brands that they, they're choosing to spend their money with. And so again, this DEI piece, I think, is inextricably linked to the topic because you're going to have to show up for not just one type of customer, but myriad types of customers. And, and they're not going to all reflect just one type of person, but, but many different types of people. If you want to show up and have these human relationships with customers, you're going to want to be able to put your, your best foot forward and, and the ethics piece and being able to connect with folks on, on that level, how you use their data, how you gather their data, how you're conceptualizing the data, I think is, is all going to be a part of that. So let's connect this quickly for our CX listeners. Where does customer experience come into this? As Nick said, brands are trying to become more human. They're trying to connect to people and build relationships, whether those people want to have a relationship with a brand or not. But what we really see is that as brands are beginning to think about representation differently and who their customers are and being able to represent their customers in media and creative, not having that backed up with data and with your data architecture is really problematic. So think, for example, of a brand that decides to put gender non-binary people in their ads, an apparel brand, for example, and we're going to be inclusive and we're going to put gender non-binary people in our ads. And hey, we're even going to create an ungendered part of our website. So the products in that section are all going to be, and, and like those are really fundamental CX things, right? But then the customer goes to the website and she or he or they set up a profile and you're still forcing them to pick male or female. That is a data ethics problem. That is a data architecture and data schema problem. And so as much as the CX teams are doing to design inclusive experiences, if the backend architecture doesn't support that experience, you've got a problem. And so what we really think CX teams have to do is start to get more involved and start to escalate those kinds of problems and those kinds of like, what are our goals for CX? And you've got to start having the technical and the data conversations now too. It seems to me like these sorts of problems with how we collect data could create cycles of bad behavior. So we start by asking the wrong question. We then get the wrong answers because we force fit people into something that isn't accurate. And then we start designing CX pros. Anyone might start designing based on the false data and then spit out an experience that, again, forces people <laughs> to choose something that doesn't fit for them. So have you seen any companies that have actually been able to break that cycle? In the research I've done, I've seen more don't do this examples than do this examples. And I think you're spot on actually with the question. There is a feedback loop with how the data is used and kind of continuously used. And so for brands to overcome these past ills, so to speak, or past limitations of the data sets that they've been uh, using, they're going to have to go out of their way to overcome this because the feedback loop is so deeply ingrained in what they've been using and how they've been trying to 
leverage it for for their purposes. Now we have to ask, can you give us one of the uh, don't do's or maybe uh, more than one? So top of mind, the healthcare industry, and, and not to pick on the healthcare industry, but that is top of mind. There's a pretty widely used data set that we came across when we were doing the research for, for this report that basically treats all humans as if they're white men, which if you're using that data set to try to make healthcare decisions for people who aren't white men, you're going to run into some limitations. And this has actually had very damaging effects in terms of how treatment has been implemented. And when I say damaging, I mean fatal, that based on the way these large healthcare data sets have been used, people have been getting unequal treatment in healthcare settings and resulting in higher mortality rates for, for certain conditions. It's not surprising. I mean, weren't like crash, test crash yeah, dummies? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about too, <laughs> yeah. the crash test dummies. And then like the, the women, quote yeah. unquote, crash test dummies were just scaled down men. Yeah. Or like 2000 calorie nutritional info. <laughs> And that's actually a perfect, perfect, perfect case for the value of inclusion and diversity and equity, because the crash chest dummy issue that we're talking about here, it took somebody at Volvo to say, wait a minute here, these dummies are the size of much larger people, which are often men. Let's see what happens if we start doing some work with smaller dummies or folks that maybe might not have these larger bodies and see how we can design around that. So, I mean, that's a one-to-one CX relationship, inclusion, diversity, equity, pretty clear. There's also another example. There's a particular sleep medication that was very popularized some 20 years ago and same clinical data set. And that medication was brought to market with very specific doses. And the lowest dose, which everybody said was super safe, was causing a lot of women in particular to do things like sleepwalk and order stuff online and binge eat and have no memory of it because all of the testing had been done on primarily males. And so the dosing schedule for women was completely different such that they didn't even bring the appropriate dose to market. And those are the kinds of examples that we think about and just think, How could that possibly happen? But it still does every day. Now that I think of it, I actually have a a less morbid example than than maybe the original one I was thinking of. And it's a, a somewhat of a comparison case. So one of the things we wrote about in our report was the embarrassing example, embarrassing for both Apple and Goldman Sachs, where the co founder of Apple, Steve Wozniak, he and his wife share finances. They have every everything's equal, right? But his wife was given a much lower credit limit on her credit card when she applied for the Apple card than Steve Wozniak, who has the exact same financial credentials, but was given a much, much higher rating. So while this is probably a, an issue on maybe Goldman Sachs end in terms of how they deal with the, the credit ratings, et cetera. It's also embarrassing for Apple, right? No, nobody really wins in that, that situation. But a comparison case that I think might be a good example for folks that might be more glass half full, I've been paying attention recently to some of the, the work that PayPal has been doing in terms of how they evaluate credit ratings. And they don't necessarily think just in the traditional ways 
financial services companies have evaluated credit worthiness. It's allowed them to expand access for folks who maybe traditionally would have been denied credit access. So again, it's thinking about how can we get these diverse perspectives, bring them to the table in within the company, which then in turn impacts how folks are experiencing the brand as customers. And think about the data side of that, right? When you are a business that says, I want to bank unbanked people, I want to provide that, you have to find a new set of data. You have to build new algorithms because the algorithms that we've used traditionally for credit worthiness scoring don't work. And you've got to test all of that. Well, how do you do that? You have to have a diverse data sciences team. You're not going to get that if the folks building your data science team and the folks that are building your models all look the same. And that's so much a part of, like when we talk about ethics, algorithmic safety, right? The popular phrasing is algorithmic bias, but sometimes what we actually have to do is inject bias into our models. We have to tweak the data, tweak the models, because the historical models and data are so loaded. We've got to say, hey, we are going to look at gender here, but norm it, right? We're going to say that gender matters more, not less. And so that's what we call algorithmic safety. And that's the kind of stuff that a company like, like PayPal is doing with their new version of crediting. One of the things you're making me think of, Fatima, with with that phrasing of inject bias is this is not a zero-sum issue. Totally. Meaning, I think folks might hear inject bias and think, oh, you're just trying to tilt the scales in, in the favor of one group over another. There are some limitations to thinking that way because it assumes that the scales weren't tipped in the other group's favor in the first place. Yeah. It also assumes that everything is a scale, right? And that's not necessarily true. Exactly. It's not that one has to go down for the other to go up. All can go up. Exactly. That's exactly right. I think it's both an opportunity and it's a limitation in how many companies have thought about potential customer bases. Because if you are inadvertently or deliberately limiting your potential customers because you don't see them as worthy, or more importantly, you don't treat them as worthy customers you're arbitrarily hindering your own growth. Yeah. So you're going to have to go out there and make a proactive effort to do something about that. And this is really a business opportunity, right? I think a lot of folks think about data ethics as in the same way that they thought about privacy, like it's a compliance issue. It's a gatekeeping issue. The data ethicists are going to tell us, no, you can't do this. But that's not our jobs. Our jobs as data ethicists is to say, have you thought about, again, the potential harm? What is your objective? Let us find a way to do this thing and create business opportunity. One of the examples that we really liked, one of the agencies in the wave kind of presented to us is Tommy Hilfiger. So Tommy Hilfiger, very well-known apparel brand, they partnered with an agency, and in this case, Wonderman Thompson, who happens to have an accessibility division, right? Wonderman Thompson has an entire practice around accessibility. And recently, they also have an entire practice around data ethics. 
And what they were able to do was really start to help Tommy Hilfiger design a line of adaptive clothing, be the agency that helped them bring that to market from a media perspective, source the right kinds of models, the physical human models, and also build the right kind of models to find the right customers. And so they're really looking at what are the data sets that help us find folks who need adaptive clothing? This kind of both hands working together is so critical and it's so human, right? Isn't this exactly what we want to be as CX pros? Like we want to be human. We want to help humans in their decision making. We want to solve humans' problems and their needs. That's what we're doing here when we combine data ethics and DEI. Love it. I don't think I can say that better. I, that's yeah, so true. So tell me, is this a top-down effort or a bottom-up effort? Who is driving this change? I don't think it could be either or. However, I do think that the absence of CEO support or, or some prominent C-level executive, the absence of that support will be a very big barrier. And in a lot of ways, it comes down to just pure dollars and cents. How are you going to get the budget to do what you want to do? How are you going to get the institutional support to do it? That being said, the life of a C-suite member or the working experience of a C-suite member is very different than the working life of a worker bee. So in a lot of ways, the vision and the support will probably come from the top, but the change is going to be going down on the ground and how people are interacting with each other, how people are running their teams, how people are showing up for the teams that they participate in. So I don't necessarily think it's either or, but I do think it's kind of a thought of like, well, what are going to be your barriers and who, who are the stakeholders in achieving these desired outcomes? One of the things I think is really important to think about when we talk about where does this come from, who's responsible, is that not all of our clients' organizations even have a DEI practice yet. Not all of our clients' organizations have a data ethics practice yet. And so in many cases, this is really skunk works. This is somebody who is part of an employee resource group that's not funded saying, hey, I noticed that we sent out an email that said this. Who made that decision? How do we escalate it? How do we think through those issues better? Nick is 100% right. You've got to have executive support. But a lot of this work can be done without extra budget. As long as you're really putting the right people in a room, you know, think about working groups where I actually, I have a client that I'm talking to this afternoon who has a sort of marketing advisory board, and it's made up of folks across the entire organization. And once a quarter, they come together, they look at all of the marketing plans for the quarter, and they say, hey, like, what is the human perspective on this? Are we thinking through all of the implications? Are we bringing a CX lens to it? Are we bringing all of the issues that exist there? That doesn't take a ton of budget to get started. It just takes the impetus and institutional support to do that. So I'd say that's a really, really important part of it. The other thing I think is important is taking the outside-in perspective. When we are looking at a consumer base that is changing before our eyes. 
millennials and Gen Z care more. They tell us they care more about privacy. They tell us they care more, even though, yes, they share their whole lives online. They still care more about privacy. They have Finstas for a reason, like a fake Instagram account, right? They care about the values. And I know you guys have talked about this on the pod before, the values that consumers now care about and their desire to trust the brands and to align themselves with brands that sort of support the values that they care about. This is important. And when we think about why should we be doing this? It's for them. It's really for them. It's for our customers. One of the things you're making me think of too, Fatima, is I actually also want folks who are listening to feel empowered to do this work. I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast that you're a CX professional, or at the very least, you care about customer experience. And really, at the end of the day, getting this DEI thing right is really about allowing you to do your job in a, in a better way as a CX professional, right? Because you're not just serving the needs of one type of customer, but you're also finding effective and efficient and replicable ways of serving all of your customers. And that, whether or not this is the first time you've heard the word DEI, or if you're at the front of the march leading a social change, you're still a CX professional at the end of the day. And so you actually have many of the tools in your toolkit to start doing this work. And in a lot of ways, it comes down to just asking different kinds of questions to start using those tools that you already have. Again, just to really underscore, I think I want folks to feel empowered because this isn't something that is sort of outside of the ordinary. It's about thinking about the work you're already doing in a very different way. That was Fatima Kadablu and Nick Monroe from Forrester dropping their knowledge on why everyone benefits when data ethics and diversity, equity, and inclusion converge. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. It was great to be here. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Love it. Awesome. And everyone else, thank you for joining as always, and we will see you again next time. Bye.